Our sermon text is from Jeremiah 29, verse 1 through 14, which can be found on page 425 in the paper Bibles. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders, to the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconia and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by hand to Alasa, the son of Saphan, and Jemariah, the son of Helikiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all that the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will, fi you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed from Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be You can be seated. All right, well, we gave Crystal a tough job this morning with all those names. We only choose the best to have to read passages like that, so don't worry. Um, well, this fall we have been studying the book of Jeremiah, and so far, over the last few weeks, we've been looking particularly at this message of repentance, uh, this message of God's call to repentance, his accusations against Judah about all the terrible things that they had done and the judgment that was coming. But today we are fast-forwarding. We're jumping from last week being in chapter 3 to this week being in chapter 29, and we are seeing what has happened, the results of those decisions that Judah made. And we jump ahead to sometime after 597 B.C. And where we are today, Babylon has come and conquered Judah. They have defeated the nation, and they have taken their people into exile. They took them over 500 miles away, and they have placed these people in the heart of enemy territory. They put them in the midst of a city that 
where, where no one shared their faith. They put them in the midst of a city whose very name was synonymous with evil. And so at this point, our people, the people of Judah, the people in exile, are faced with the dilemma. They've got to ask the question, what do we do now? How are we supposed to live in the heart of Babylon? Now that may seem like a distant historical event. It might seem like something that's a long time in the past, but this is a dilemma that has remained a major problem for God's people throughout history. The issue of how do we live in society? How do we be Christians here? How do we be Christians in the city? Um, you know, Christians aren't really known necessarily for their love of cities. I, I always remember the story of a friend of mine who's a pastor in Watertown, and he was going down, uh, he left to go to some other part of the country to do some fundraising for their congregation. And one of the churches he presented, he told them all about Watertown and all the work they were doing. And at the end, they asked someone, would you pray for this pastor before he, he leaves? And so the leader stood up and he came and prayed for him. And he said, Lord, I just thank you for this man that you would send him to those people. I know I wouldn't do it, but I'm glad you sent him. <laughs> I feel like that is so common. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is the way that the church generally thinks about the city. Um, but when we look at what God says here, we see something totally different. It tells us that not only should, should Christians have a love for the city, but God's people should be so connected to the city that they see their fates, the fate of the church and the fate of the city as one in the same. It says, when it prospers you will prosper. So how does that happen? How does a church exist in the city? How do we live like God has instructed us to live in this place? Well, speaking through Jeremiah, God gives us some answers to that question. Speaking through this prophet here today, he shows us, first, the approach we should have to the city. Secondly, he shows us our call to the city. And then finally, he shows us the gospel for the city. So let's first talk about our approach to the city. Um, this, this passage is rooted. The context here is there is a dispute. There is a dispute between the people of Judah who are now living in exile in this foreign country and how they're supposed to approach this new life. And the text we're reading is a letter. This is actually a letter that was written by Jeremiah to these exiles. He wasn't with them, so someone carried this letter all the way to them uh, over these trade roads that existed between the different parts of the ancient Near East. And the reason the letter was written was because there was a certain group of people, a group of false prophets, who had risen up. They had maybe looked at some of the cultural things happening in that day, maybe some of the historic events, some rebellions or some weakening of the strength of Babylon. But whatever the reason was, these false prophets rose up and they said to the people, Buckle down, huddle up, and don't invest yourselves in society here, because this time in Babylon is coming to an end. We're going to be here just maybe, maybe two years or so, and after that, we're all going to head back. So there's no use in making a life here, because God has different plans for us. And even though those, that may seem very specific to them, I think we have seen this same dynamic play out time and time and time again, with the way Christians tend to interact with their city. Um, 
Tim Keller is a pastor in New York who I read a lot and talk about a lot, but he has a, a, a series of lectures on life in the city where he kind of breaks down the, the different approaches people have historically taken to the city. And the first approach is called assimilation. And that's what we see happening here uh, in Babylon's plan. The plan for Babylon was a, of Babylon was a plan of assimilation. They wanted the people of Judah to assimilate to Babylonian culture. If you read about their, their plan, it says that they, they took these, the people, but not just any people, they took the leaders. They took the politicians, they took the priests, they took the craftsmen, they took the young and influential people, and they brought them all to their city. And I think it's kind of a brilliant strategy, honestly. Instead of taking these talented people and destroying them or imprisoning them, they instead took the best and the brightest of their culture and they just brought them to a strange place. They put them in an unfamiliar environment where there was a new language, where there was a new culture, where uh, there were people who didn't share their beliefs, and then they set them free. They set them free to, to live however they wanted to seek a life for themselves with the hope that they would blend in and lose their distinction as Israelites, that they would just become Babylonians. And Christians, we do this today. You know, people, Christians do this all the time. We come to a place like this city, and we immediately just absorb all of the culture's values. We take them in unquestioningly, and then uh, when you compare that Christian's life with the life of anyone else in the city, there's almost no difference between them. This is assimilation. When you lose your distinction as a person of God. And it's not only individual Christians who do that. Churches do that. Churches do it all the time. Whenever we come into these places where uh, what the Bible teaches is countercultural, where it rubs our culture raw a little bit, we start to minimize and, and de-emphasize those points, maybe dismiss them and, and hide them, until eventually there really isn't any difference between the church and any other civically-minded organization. But that's what assimilation is. That's the plan. That's what Babylon was hoping would happen to the people of Judah. Now, on the other side of that, the other extreme is not assimilation, but it is uh, the separatist approach. And this was the approach of the false prophets. The false prophets were saying, we are God's holy and chosen people, and we need to protect ourselves. We need to wall ourselves off from this evil culture that exists around us. The false prophets, they said to this community of exiles, gather yourself up and stay in this little uh, religious ghetto that, that Babylon's given us here in Nippur, just outside the city, and stay there. Keep to yourselves and, and wait it out. But do not, by any means, expose yourself to this evil world. Now, I think we can see pretty quickly how Christians take that approach to culture this, this stance where they say, the world is evil, the culture around us is evil, so we need to build our own separate Christian culture and protect ourselves from the rest of the world. When I was younger, I went on a, a mission trip, a little short mission trip with a Christian organization, and this was, you know, way back in the day when music actually, like, existed, you know, in, like, a physical format where you could carry it around and put it into things, and so I had brought my pack of of CDs with me and my disc man to listen to that music because that's how you did it. And, uh, 
And I brought this with me on the trip, and they announced to us all that Christians were not allowed to listen to non-Christian music. And so if you had brought any with you, it must be destroyed immediately. Um, and so, of course, I didn't bring any with me, right? I, had it, I just kept it in my bag, <laughs> and I let no one know about it. Um, but that's the idea. When we start thinking that, that the world is, is against us, when it's evil, the church develops this antagonistic and fearful relationship with the world. Um, and that even, you know, mutate into to terrorism, right? It can mutate into the Crusades where we try to overtake the world. But that's the idea of the separatists. You know, it's us versus them. Now, recently... Uh, there's also been a, a kind of new approach that Christians often have to the city. And I don't know if it technically falls within the realm of our passage, you know, because it's neither the uh, assimilationist idea and it's not really the separatist idea either, but it's, it's somewhere in between. And what I would call that is it's, it's the consumerist approach to the city or maybe the tourist approach to the city. So on one hand, you are saying, I don't belong here. You know, this isn't my place, like the separatist people. But on the other hand, like the assimilationist place, you say, I do like the city, though, and I want the things it has to offer. And so you come and you say, well, I'm here in the city for a time, but this is not my home. And I don't belong here, so I'm not going to invest here. But instead, I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to take in the culture. I'm going to take in the nightlife. Maybe I'll get a degree. Maybe I'll advance my career but I'm here to get what I need, and when I'm done, I'm gone. It's the approach that says, the city is my playground, and when I'm tired, I'm going to leave. So those are the main approaches, and those are the things I think we need to keep in mind as we look at, at what Jeremiah says here. Because the assimilationist approach says that, uh, you know, we want the church and the city to become indistinguishable, while the separatist approach says that the church and the people are enemies, which will lead us to either you know, protect ourselves or try to conquer or destroy it or use it. But Jeremiah gives us a different approach. Here's what Jeremiah says, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What this says is that God and his people are meant to live in the city as exiles. We're meant to live as exiles, but what does that mean? Uh, I, had a, I have a friend who uh, lives in the city, and he is actually an exile. Um, he worked in a Latin American country earlier in his life and, and actually rose to a very important position within the government. But at some point, there was a coup, and overnight, everything changed. Someone called him in the middle of the night, and they said, the, things have changed we're in power now, and if you're not gone by the morning, we will kill you. And so he got up, he booked a flight, and he left the country that morning and has never been back. But if you talk to him today, he still loves the country he came from. 
His heart is tied to that country that he can never go back to. That's his primary allegiance. And yet, for now, his life is here. His life's work is here. And all his energy is poured into this community. And I think that idea of exile perfectly describes who we are as Christians. If you're a Christian, this is a great description of what the Christian life is like. It tells us that that we belong to God and that God is the king of our kingdom, that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. He's the one who owns our heart's allegiances. But this is the place where we live. And this is the place where we will be, and this is the place where our energies go until we eventually get to be with him again in glory. And that language of exile, thinking of Christians as exile, is such a great term that throughout the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament pick back up on it and use it again to speak to us. We read it in our New Testament reading this morning, right? He says, beloved, Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, they'll, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God. In other words, he's saying as citizens of God's kingdom, we are always exiles. And we're supposed to live with our hearts set on this heavenly kingdom that's actually our home, but he has a plan for us now. Right? That's what verse 11 says. God promises. He says, I know the plans I have for you to give you a future and a hope. Something else that's, that's really interesting here. Did you notice how the address started? God says, he's writing this letter to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. God says, I have sent you into exile. He didn't say to all the exiles that Babylon came and scooped up and so evilly took away. He says, to all the people who I have put into exile. In other words, God has a purpose for them being there. As Christians, we like to talk about the idea of calling, right? If you're ever around a group of Christians, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you, you certainly will, will hear this thrown around, the idea of calling. What's God calling me to? And when we talk about calling, what do we usually talk about? talk about our jobs, maybe, maybe the person we're dating, <laughs> maybe our plans for marriage, but it's usually some idea, something off in the future. But Philip Ryken, when he looked at this passage, he says, this passage to us is a reminder that God doesn't only call people to jobs and spouses, but God calls people to churches, and he calls them to cities. So often in the church, we get so distracted by our plans for out there. The thing that we're expecting to happen one, two, three, maybe 20 years down the road. We get so wrapped up in the idea of what God might be calling us to that we forget that God's calling on our lives is now. That God has a plan for you sitting in this room today. There's a purpose for you being here. And so the question is, are you willing to invest? Are you willing to pray, or are we going to huddle up? Are we going to hunker down, and we're just going to wait for this season of life to pass? God wants to see that it is not, he wants these people to see that it's not an accident of history that they ended up in Babylon. But it's his will for them. It's his will for their community. And it's his will for the city of Babylon itself. 
And so that's how God says we're supposed to approach the city. We're supposed to approach the city uh, not living against the culture, not assimilating to the culture, but we're supposed to live as exiles in the city who are, who are in the city but different from it. But what does that mean? What is our call to the city? Once we're here, once we've decided we're supposed to be here, what's the next step? What did, what did God want these people to do? Well, he gives them some really practical, some really practical stuff. This is the second point. He, he says in verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Eugene Peterson, uh, who's a Bible scholar, he translated this. He said, make yourself at home. The fundamental challenge for these people in Judah was their unwillingness to set down roots. It was their, their, their idea that we said, we've only got a couple years here, and so we're going to be moving on, and we're going to keep living that way the whole time we're here. And that mindset, that temporary, I'm just here for a season mindset, is one of the most devastating things that can ever happen in a city. I was just talking to Will Morales the other day. If you know him, he runs a program for at-risk youth at the YMCA over here on Washington Street. And just asking him, you know, what we could do, how we could maybe help out with his ministry, and what, what do his kids and his ministry need? Um, I say, I'm saying ministry, but he's, it's not a Christian ministry. It's just, you know, his, his, his program. And he said that the key to having any sort of impact in the city is consistency. He says, in a world that is transient, where people are constantly turning over, where people have great intentions but never follow through, the one thing that will matter to people is that you're just around. The call of God to build and plant is a call to do that. It's a call to view the city as a destination and not a detour in your life. Philip Ryken was the pastor of uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, which is a pretty big, established congregation. And when he looked at this, in a city that's you know, very similar to ours in a lot of ways, he said he, he really felt like he had to challenge his congregation to say, are you even willing to pray this? Are you even willing to pray and ask God if he might have a lifetime call for you and this church? If he might have a lifetime call on your life in this city? And maybe if you're already a lifelong Bostonian in this room, maybe if you've, you've always been here, you're starting to feel a little bit righteous. <laughs> but I want to say, you know, just because you you're not from somewhere else and you don't necessarily have some other place calling you, it doesn't mean we're living obediently to this just by default. Because the next thing that God says is, plant gardens and eat their produce. He says, in other words, cultivate this place. Develop this place. Make this place better. That's what he's calling them to do. He goes on and he says, Mary, increase and do not decrease. Uh, I know for a lot of us here, this may seem like uh, an, a point that doesn't apply to us, but I, I want to say, God is calling the Israelites in Babylon to make more Israelites in Babylon. That's, that's the essence of this command. He's saying, to build families of believers and have children and raise them up in faith. Now, our church, we're, we, we haven't been too bad at this so far, right? 
We've been, we've been, you know, rattling off some babies at a fairly fast pace over the last couple of years. But I think the challenge to us is this question, where are we going to raise these children? Where are we going to raise these families? There is a great need for Christian families to invest in our city. And I know it's especially hard if you're not from here. It's especially hard if you have this sort of ancestral memory of a a green, grassy yard and a white picket fence. A well-funded public school system. (laughs) By raising a family in the city, though, I want to encourage you. It's one of the most significant things that we can do. It's one of the most impactful things that we can do is to stay here and be here. To live our life like everybody else. But then when it comes to the end, when it comes to the last part of this, it says... His purpose for all these practical instructions, the reason why God says build and plant and marry, ultimately can be summed up in this line. He says, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. Some Bibles translate it, seek the peace of the city. All of this stuff so far has been about this. This is the purpose, that you're supposed to be here to seek the welfare of the city. And the real word behind there is shalom, that you would seek the shalom of the city. And that's a huge idea. The concept of shalom is bigger than just peace. It's bigger than just welfare, but it is about the world as it's supposed to be. It's about complete and total flourishing of existence. And so, in essence, when God says that we should seek the peace of the city, he's telling us, first of all, we need to be doing the small things. We need to be shoveling our neighbor's front, lawn, front driveway when it starts to snow. We need to vote in our elections. There is one on Tuesday, by the way. Did you have any idea? <laughs> there is one on Tuesday for our city councilors. We need to vote in our elections. We need to meet our neighbors and have them over for dinner and get to share life with them and get to know who they are. We need to do the little things. We need to do what Jesus said when he commands us to love our neighbors And not just the neighbors that we have a lot in common with, but all of our neighbors. But we also need to do the big things. We need to fight for the things that God cares about. When we seek the peace of the city, we're supposed to be fighting against injustice. We're supposed to be working towards equality for all people. We're supposed to fight against social justice and to work against racism. And we're supposed to care for the poor. This call to seek the peace of the city is a call to do anything and everything that will further the public good. And as we're talking about this, we, we end up touching on one of the great things about Boston as a city. Because none of that is, is at all countercultural. None of you are, are sad that I just told you that we should love people and take care of them. This is a value that we hold on to. We like this idea. Uh, when, when we hear that, we say, of course, of course Christians should love their city. Everyone should love their city. But when I say that, I'm reminded of the Peace Garden in Eggleston Square. Has anybody ever been there? We have events there from time to time. Uh, it's a great place. Um, it's right on the corner of School and Washington Street, and it exists as a memorial for people who have died in, in violence. 
And every time someone is killed, there's a, a ceremony where we put a brick in the ground and we put their name on it and we talk about how we want peace and how this is the worst. But if you go there and you stand there and you look around, you'll see that, that the Peace Garden is not the most peaceful place. In fact, it's an extremely noisy place. Uh, there's, there's, you know, despite our best efforts to clean it regularly, there's a lot of trash on the ground. And despite our best efforts to patrol it regularly, there's quite a few drug deals that happen there. It's, it's a messy place, and it is a reminder to me, every time I see it, of what peace looks like apart from Christ. That it's just a hollow and empty shell. Because when God calls these people to seek shalom, the real definition of shalom is not just total human flourishing, but it is total human flourishing with God at the center. It's a picture of that city in the end of Revelation that comes down where God is wiping every tear from everyone's eyes and that he is the light at the focus of this city. And so when God commands people to seek the peace of the city, what he's saying is we need to build that heavenly city here in this earthly city. God's call to us, God's call to the city, it's to build, to plant, to marry, to do the works of God, but not only the works of God, but to bring God himself into the city. And so that brings us to the most radical part of this message, the gospel for the city. Can you imagine what this would have been like to hear this read? To hear Jeremiah, God's prophet, say, seek the shalom of God in Babylon. Pray for the redemption of the most wicked place on earth. How could that be? The people of Judah, they had to hear that and they say, surely this, this must have been a mistake. This, can't, this letter couldn't have really come from Jeremiah. How, how is this possible? This is an extremely impressive passage, impressive passage for that reason, because, well, do you know, do you know that this passage is the first place in all of Scripture where God tells his people to pray for their enemies? I mean, think about it. These people had watched their, their, the city that they had built be plundered and pillaged. Many of them had died on the road to exile. They had seen their whole lives destroyed. The Babylonians were the definition of God's enemies. These people were the enemies of God. How could we possibly seek their welfare? Well, this right here, folks, is a glimpse into the very heart of God. This command shows us the deepest reality of the message we call the gospel. It shows us that God cares about sinners. The whole story of Scripture, the whole story of this book, is the story of a God who comes after people to redeem them, who is seeking after a people who hate him, who's seeking after people who don't deserve him in any way. And the ultimate example of this we find in Christ. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, 
we were reconciled. Now, if you're a Christian in this room, you should identify with the exiles. I've built it up. The language of exile is something that makes sense for us. But the truth is, by nature, we are all like the people of Babylon. We are, by nature, the enemies of God. We want nothing to do with him. We don't belong to him. We are separated from him by our sin. And do you know what God's solution to that problem is? Do you know how God solves the problem of his love for sinners and our lack of desire for him? His plan to save us from our sin was simple. He decided to move in with us. The gospel tells us that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And not only did he live and generally seek the benefit of our society, but we're told that Christ lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to God, and he did it in our place. And on the cross, he bore the weight of our sin. On the cross, he bore the weight of our rejection of God. Paul says, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. When God speaks through Jeremiah and he says, seek the welfare of the city, that is a command that has ultimately been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, that Jesus lived among us and reconciled to himself all things. That he brought everything back the way that it was supposed to be, and he made shalom. He made peace with God by the blood of the cross. And that's our only hope. That is our only hope to ever see any sort of peace here in Boston. Because here's the reality. Life in this city is hard. If you are from Boston, life here is hard because you can pour out your life and pour out your energy and the place changes so quickly that everything can be gone in a moment. Life in Boston is hard because no matter who you are, the pressure here is high. And there are more comfortable places to live. There are cheaper places to live. There are easier places to be. And me simply telling you that the Bible says that we should care about Boston, isn't going to be enough. <laughs> That's not going to be enough to make you seek the peace of the city when somebody offers you a six-figure job in Ohio <laughs> or when somebody tells you about an $800 a month apartment in Brockton. The only thing that's going to keep you here, the only thing that's going to keep me here, the only thing that's going to make us seek the shalom of this city is if we see Jesus. If we see ourselves and see how little we deserve his grace, how much we would have deserved to have been abandoned and left behind for God to say, enough with you guys, I'm done. To see that, and then to see Christ. To see what we deserved, and then to see what God gave us instead. He gave us his very life. Only when we realize that Christ has come and given his life as a ransom for us will we be willing to go and give our lives as a ransom for others. And so the last thing I want to say this morning before we're done is I want to answer a practical question. 
These are all big picture things I'm talking about. How do we get started? What do we do? If, you're, if you believe that this is something you should do, whether you're going to be here for five minutes or the rest of your life, what do we, where do we start? Well, there's one word in this passage that I've been skipping over, but I think it's, it's the focus of his command, and it's this. It's pray. God says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. If we want shalom, if we really want it, if we want thriving, total human flourishing with God at the center, then the place we need to start is in prayer. The place we need to start is by going to God and asking him to accomplish something that is quite honestly impossible. We have a prayer meeting. It meets at 6.30 a.m. on Tuesdays. And you know, it may be the most poorly attended prayer meeting in the history of earth, but I'll tell you that at that meeting, God is present and God is at work. We need to pray. We need to pray together corporately as a church. We need to pray on our own in our room. We need to pray. We need to seek the Lord. We need to ask him to do this. God tells us we need to ask him to do this because this city's future is our church's future. This city's future is your future. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Let's pray. Lord, this is a wonderful city to live in. And, and we're grateful, Lord. I'm especially grateful for all the people who have lived here much longer than me. Uh, a decade seems pretty short uh, compared to the, the lifelong legacies of the Christian men and women who have lived here before us. Um, and I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do ministry here. Lord, I thank you for the people in this congregation who've lived here their whole life and have seen, uh, felt your call to join with us and be a part of this work. And Lord, I want to pray for, for, for those here in this room who don't know where they're going to be a year, or two years, five years from now. And Lord, I want to ask that you would just open their hearts to ask the question, are you calling me to live life here and set down roots? And Lord, I pray that no matter who is in this room and where they might be from, that every single one of us now would look to Jesus and recognize that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Lord, we could not have been saved by a God who commuted, <laughs> but we needed a God to move in with us and give his life for us. And that has happened to us through the gospel of Jesus. We thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen.